Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. In our last episode, we spoke to the co-founder and CEO of Sidekick Health, a startup that is working to radically transform patient care and disease management with digital care and therapeutic tools. Today, we take a broader macro view at the state of digital health innovation, speaking with two McKinsey partners, Jenny Rost and Tobias Zilberzahn. Jenny Rost is based in Washington, D.C. and a partner in McKinsey's healthcare practice. She focuses on innovations in virtual health and care delivery models to improve healthcare outcomes, quality, and efficiency. Tobias Zilberzahn is based in Berlin and a partner in McKinsey's pharmaceutical and medical products practice. He leads McKinsey's global health tech network and CEO roundtable with over 600 health tech companies. He focuses on healthcare innovation and serves digital health, medical device, and pharmaceutical companies, as well as ministries of health. Jenny, Tobias, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Thank you. Let's start with an overview of the virtual health sector. How do you segment the space? What are some of the most promising segments? And just as important, how much financial value do you see it potentially creating in terms of health system cost savings? Uh, Tobias, if you want to start. Yeah, happy to. We typically break down digital health in a to about 25 categories. And out of those, uh, 10 are patient-facing, such as uh, online appointment booking, telemedicine, symptom checking, etc. And um, yeah, about uh, 13 of them are non-patient-facing in the background, like clinical decision support tools for doctors and things like that. And two really have become critical to many countries' health systems, and that's electronic patient records and e-prescription. To help assess the impact of digital health across the 25 segments, we sort of quantify the value that each of those segments brings to a country or a health system. And to do that, we analyzed more than 500 research papers out there, the published benefits, how they could add value to a health system, how they could help doctors, how they could save money for insurances. Matching that to the different buckets of a health system spend, we found that digital health across these 25 categories could save quite a lot of money for health systems that then could be spent elsewhere, pretty much equivalent to 10 to 15% of current healthcare spend, depending on which country we look at. If I take my home country, Germany, as an example, with a total healthcare spend of 290 to 300 billion, we would be talking about 30 to 35 billion in annual savings that digital health could, uh, could drive. An example that I'm very excited about is patient remote monitoring. You enable doctors to really look at their patients' vital signs offline several times a day if needed. For example, in a COVID-19 setting, that would mean that patients would submit their breathlessness, their body temperature, their oxygen saturation of the blood about three times a day. And the doctor could then monitor these patients and look after them online. And if we take that kind of patient remote monitoring as an example, it could be done, of course, for oncology patients. It could be done for asthma patients, for diabetes patients, et cetera. But this digital health category alone would save 3.3 billion 
euro for the German health system and so on and so forth. What I'm very excited about, obviously, is that there are savings from digital health, both on the health system side, but it also is really positive on the patient and the doctor side. Knowing some of the pilot projects for COVID-19 patient remote monitoring in Germany, in the UK, several doctors said, can I use that for all my patients, for my chronic disease patients? And a lot of the patients said, it actually feels good that the doctor is sort of watching over me and, and, and looking at my values when I'm here at home in, in quarantine or isolation. Jenny, in terms of the potential financial value, promising use cases, what are the tailwinds that you're seeing driving growth in the space? Yeah, COVID-19 really has been an unlock for virtual health. A lot of the technology for telehealth and even some remote monitoring has existed for quite a while but it was largely used in very limited circumstances. A primary example being what we call virtual urgent care, where you have a telehealth visit with any doctor available through that platform for a one-time visit to address an immediate need. That too, we've seen grow during COVID, but we've seen much more consumer adaptation. We've seen much more provider adaptation of telehealth and other virtual health modalities because of the realities of the situation of COVID, of not wanting to go out if you didn't have to, um, particularly where you could be exposed to uh, people who are sick. And so what we're seeing going forward is both much more sustained interest from consumers and providers in continuing to use telehealth um, and a lot more innovation in the models. We're seeing virtual care move from more of this on-demand urgent care to full virtual primary care practices or specialist models, um, particularly for behavioral health. And to Tobias's point, a lot more opportunities to really integrate telehealth and those video visits with remote monitoring, with digital patient engagement and digital therapeutics tools um, to really provide a much more continuous patient experience and really innovate care models. We did some analysis that suggested in the U.S. about a quarter trillion dollars of current U.S. spend in healthcare for outpatient services could be moved to virtual. That comes to be about 35% of all outpatient office and home health visits. And in terms of where the savings comes from, there's some more near-term opportunities for things like just moving care to more efficient sites of care. So if you can do a virtual visit with a doctor for $50 instead of going to the emergency room and having a thousand plus dollar visit, there's clear near-term savings there. The longer term opportunity really though is in how do you bring together these modalities of care, bring together the data and an integrated experience to help clinicians, help patients manage more chronic conditions and improve outcomes overall. Yes, the rising cost of healthcare globally is clearly a major driver of innovation. Tobias, how much do we know yet about the ability of digital health to improve patient outcomes? And this is a great question because it brings together all the healthcare stakeholders within the healthcare industry. And when we look at patient experience in digital health, we can see that a bit in the the app store economy. And it's quite telling in my view, when you look at uh, the patient experience On the one side and the downloads for several of these digital health applications, you actually find in many cases a strong correlation between user satisfaction ratings and the volume of downloads. For some diseases like diabetes, the two to three highest rated digital health apps and solutions have dramatically higher downloads than the rest of the apps uh, often combined. So 
leading the healthcare innovation program within McKinsey Germany, where we focus on prevention topics such as sleep, nutrition, fitness, and stress management. I personally test a lot of digital health solutions. Um, I'm pretty much our chief guinea pig in, in this. And what's very important for me is looking at a new solution and asking, what is the return on engagement of the solution? And this is a term that Bettina Röll, who leads the Melanoma Patient Network Europe, has used, and I love it. Because in other words, how many inputs do I as a patient need to make? And what are the useful outputs that I receive? Right? And many digital health solutions still have quite a misbalance there, which usually means that people don't use them for a very long time. Another big topic here is convenience, where I believe the healthcare industry still can learn a lot from other industries, especially the consumer-facing industries. For example, there's quite some interest in healthcare businesses from telecommunications companies, mobile phone companies, and other consumer companies. And there, the mindset is fascinating compared with some of the more traditional healthcare players. There is a lot more focus on convenience. There's a lot more focus on patient journeys and speed. Jenny, do you want to add something? Yeah, Jenny, I'd love to hear your thoughts on levels of adoption and also what you think about consumers' likelihood of sticking with virtual health as much post-COVID and how we see the trend evolving. And we've been tracking this actually quite a lot through our consumer health uh, insight surveys on a regular basis throughout COVID. And what we really saw as expected was last spring, there was a huge spike in use of virtual care. And we've seen it play out differently for different types of care since then. For example, behavioral health, we've seen the highest sustained interest in using um, virtual care going forward as reported by a metric of 60 plus percent of respondents um, intending to use virtual care for behavioral health. For primary care in comparison, it spiked to around 40, 40 plus percent in May and June, and then dropped and has been leveling out somewhere in the 20, 20 plus percent range since then. So it's really going to depend a lot on the types of care people are seeking, and also what providers um, continue to do. One of the big questions in the US is whether reimbursement will stay at parity, which it has moved to for Medicare um, during COVID, and which many private payers also moved to, or how that reimbursement trend will continue over time. As we look at consumers, you know, most people have been pretty satisfied with their experience. 72% um, of consumers were very satisfied and overall 94% were very or moderately satisfied with their experience. And those who had used telehealth before were 1.5 times more likely to use it again. Some of the biggest factors we're seeing are one, a lot of people are having their virtual visits with a known provider that they know and trust. And so that's been a big factor in continuing adoption. Um, in addition, a lot of it going forward will depend on how easy is it to engage? Is it cumbersome? Is it just a click of a button? And so continuing to Tobias's points about this convenience factor, that's going to definitely be a factor going forward. Tobias, in terms of the providers, physicians, hospitals, healthcare systems, what is their feeling about the value of virtual health offerings? Is it purely about the dollars and cents, just reimbursement, or are there any issues about feeling disintermediated, or maybe it increases the direct connection with the, the patients? Many of them actually see it as an opportunity, and I mean an opportunity in terms of improving health outcomes 
improving health and well-being for their patients or their insured population. And of course, also improving patient satisfaction. If we, for example, take the example of a health insurance, then um, they can actually orchestrate um, quite a lot of these digital health offerings into broader ecosystems of offerings that actually make sense together instead of being just a collection of point solutions. And that's when we get back to the patient journey where we then say, what is a helpful patient journey for, let's say, a young mother? Or what is a helpful patient journey for a diabetes patient? There really the opportunity is that uh, the digital health solutions can actually stitch together quite a few of those classic medical interventions that have been delivered by hospitals or that have been delivered by general practitioners um, and actually act a bit like the glue that, that guides these patients through their health-related journey. Right? That could mean that one says, what are the 10 most frequent touch points that in our example, a diabetes patient goes through and how can we make these as convenient and as smooth as possible. And another factor where digital health can actually play a role is then with sort of using gamification, nudging, cognitive behavioral therapy kind of components to help people really with their behavior change because that has been a big problem in the past. Um, some of the numbers in the past have shown that uh, patients spend, depending on which country we look at, between eight minutes or 15 minutes or 12 minutes with a doctor, right? And um, I would say I'm a pretty motivated patient in terms of my health, but I cannot sustainably change my behavior towards being better um, after just seeing a doctor for, for 10 minutes, uh, maybe once in a quarter or, or once in a year, right? And that's where I think the opportunity lies in my point of view. And that's where also quite a lot of the hospitals, health insurances and healthcare companies see the opportunity where digital health is helping to stitch things together and to help people with sustainable behavior change to then increase their health and well-being. Uh, just to add to that, we've also seen some health systems really moving to much more innovative models to moving more care to a home enabled by digital health. So for example, building even hospital at home models where more acute care can be delivered in an at-home setting, leveraging a lot of the digital innovations to be as referenced. And certainly behavior is a key component, especially in chronic disease management, which makes up such a huge portion of health costs and health impacts. Jenny, to what extent do you think virtual health can help achieve greater health equity for underserved communities that have typically had problems getting the health care they need? It's a really great question. I think there's both some real opportunities, but also some challenges. One of the most basic challenges is just access to broadband and particularly in rural areas. So can you even access the infrastructure? And then as we think about you know, improving health equity, some of the populations that could most benefit may not have access to smartphones or have data plans to really take advantage of virtual care. Um, you also have to think about whether digital health offerings are being offered in languages to be accessible to all communities. 
Having said that, if we can address those, digital health and virtual health really do have an opportunity to improve access, especially where there are shortages of certain providers in some communities, like a big shortage of behavioral health providers in the US as an example. So I'd say a lot of potential, but a lot of work to do to make sure we address the equity side. Tobias, what are the headwinds outside of patient pain points? How big a challenge to growth are things like cybersecurity, privacy, interoperability, and regulation? I think there are quite a lot of different areas that impact adoption of digital health in a country. There are three categories of those. There is first the whole digital health regulation and strategy of the country. And that includes, does the country have a digital health strategy that goes towards adoption? And is there a regulatory environment that uh, provides a pathway for digital health solutions into the market, like, uh, like what the FDA is doing with software as a medical device or what Germany is doing with a new digital health application process? And then thirdly, the reimbursement, that can be done on an individual level where then individual insurances or individual employers either reimburse or not. But it can also be done on a national level, as Germany has just shown with their new uh, combined regulatory reimbursement process, which really helps also create a, um, a pathway for digital health companies into the market on a national level. Then there is, of course, the whole technical piece that we discussed briefly earlier. If there are electronic health records in that country that work very well, and you alluded to interoperability um, and data exchange that can be a massive enabler combined with e-prescriptions as well. E-prescriptions again are a bit like the glue between virtual care and in-person care and then the digital applications that happen afterwards. And finally, there's a lot of stakeholder adoption to be considered, patients, payers, providers, that has been shown by a lot of Scandinavian countries, which have created a vibrant innovation ecosystem that then helped also with adoption by the doctors in the hospitals, outpatient settings, or by the patients. I recently heard a digital health solution in Stockholm that uh, very quickly became adopted by more than 1 million users. But that was a very concerted effort in that innovation ecosystem. So, so I think that for some countries, that has been a challenge. Getting a lot of these factors right can be hard work. And it is, of course, a combination of the softer factors, the technological factors, and then, of course, the also the overarching regulation. Jenny, obviously, the U.S.'s healthcare system is very different from Europe. How does the development of the virtual health ecosystem, especially for startups in the U.S., differ? And where do you see the biggest opportunities for adoption and innovation in the U.S. in this virtual health space? Yeah, there's lots of areas. It's growing uh, remarkably fast across a, a whole range of types of solutions from the virtual practices that we were describing before, platforms, uh, you know, digital pharmacy solutions, remote monitoring, uh, digital therapeutics, etc. And we're seeing lots of players in this space and a lot of development here. I think the big challenge is right now there's not a central ecosystem they all plug into. So as payers are thinking about these solutions and hearing from these startups, they're trying to think about how to not just have a bunch of different point solutions for their members, or as providers are thinking about their solutions, similarly, how to not just have a bunch of point systems that don't talk to each other. So the biggest challenge is really, how do you integrate the information 
so that the technology solutions, the providers, the payers can all actually talk to each other and work in a coordinated manner to actually improve patients' health. Jenny, just a quick follow-up. Do we have a sense of how much more challenging this complicated system is for startups trying to get into the space? I think there's challenges across the front. There's certainly a lot of investment in this space. Just in the first half of um, 2020, there was more than $5 billion of VC and PE investments in startups in digital health models compared to $2 billion the year before. Um, so we're seeing a lot of activity and interest here. Um, we're also seeing more of some of the established players like payers making co-investments, et cetera, to try and make sure they're bringing the best innovations into their systems. Tobias, how do you think about the potential of end-to-end ecosystems in Europe and getting beyond a traditional approach to healthcare? Across different uh, countries and also continents, I see striking differences. If we just take one type of ecosystem um, as an example, um, there is activity now going on on different continents to combine what in the past used to be physician-driven services, primary care-driven services that, that have been delivered by a doctor, and then pharmacy services that have been delivered by pharmacies, right? And I don't know the exact number, but if you look at that in Germany or some other European countries, these services by regulation or by law have been separated sometimes for hundreds of years, right? I think even in the medieval ages, there was already then the separation between a pharmacist and a doctor. And these two things were separate by sort of professional definition of jobs and and roles. And now we are actually seeing that some of these things that have been separate for such a long time are actually coming together. And that, of course, then opens up a lot of opportunity for patients so in that regard, we, we see primary care and some pharmacy services being combined into ecosystems uh, in the US. We see that also in Europe and in Asia in, in some of the Chinese emerging ecosystems too. Um, for example, in some of the ecosystems in China, it doesn't seem to be a big problem to do both health insurance services and physician services. But it's also quite difficult for some countries to do that, uh, depending on their regulations and how jobs are being defined. If we look at other ecosystems, and there, I would say a good example is the combination of health insurance services with physician services, then it can become quite complicated. If you look at some of the European countries, that is pretty much two completely different industries. And health insurance now starting to provide physician services, that has sparked a debate in quite a few of the European countries. Jenny, are the business models you're seeing from different startups in, in virtual health mostly the same or do they vary quite a bit? Yes, some of the ones I'm most excited about are really around the ones that are incorporating the, the behavioral science to actually change behaviors and help engage uh, individuals to you know stay on their care plans to manage their health and wellness, as Tobias was mentioning earlier. That's really the big nut to crack to manage care outside of your clinician appointments. So there's a lot of companies in this space um, d- developing these offerings and then trying to integrate it with some more of the clinical ones, integrate with remote monitoring, with the virtual visits to the point on how do the insurance and the providers come together. In the US, we're starting to see a lot more providers who are taking financial risk 
and therefore have really strong incentives to improve their patients' health outcomes and manage medical costs. And in some of these innovative providers, we're starting to see them also really think about how do you integrate remote monitoring and telehealth into your care team? And that's where some of the most acceleration of using virtual health to manage outcomes is really progressing. Just to clarify, when you talk about taking financial risk, is that doctors setting up their own private practices, not being part of bigger hospital organizations or health system organizations, so more of their own money is at stake? No, good to clarify. It's taking the medical risk from the insurance company. So receiving a portion of the premium from the insurance company and then managing the patient's health and medical costs within that amount, as opposed to a fee-for-service payment. Oh, okay. And Tobias, from your end in Europe, are there different business models you're seeing from promising startups out there and different innovations that you think are the most potential in the digital health space? There is quite a lot of um, experimentation still going on on the business model side, especially in these countries that don't have a, a national reimbursement process in place yet. We see pretty much everything from B2C kind of models, where then there are subscription models for, for consumers directly. There is then um, fees and licensing fees per month for doctors, um, especially in the online appointment booking space. And then there is also various leasing models um, more towards hospitals. One thing that is actually quite an interesting opportunity for many of the digital health companies out there right now is also the partnership space. You could either say we can provide our digital health solutions either directly to consumers or focus directly on physicians, outpatients and hospitals. But you could also say are there actually partnership models for some of those health ecosystems that are emerging or that are already out there? And that is an interesting topic because currently it almost seems like a battle of platforms is going on in healthcare. Lots of companies are saying that they are building a platform and that their platform should be center stage, spider in the web. But usually when we look at different industries, when the battle of platforms is over, then usually there are not that many platforms left, right? And right now we see lots of different platforms being built in the healthcare space. For digital health companies, it can actually be quite an interesting opportunity to then say, can I actually do partnerships with some of those ecosystems? And that also makes in quite a few cases sense for the organizations that are building the ecosystems because they can't build everything on their own, right? We talked earlier about 25 different digital health categories. There's actually quite often a high interest to then use white label versions of certain digital health solutions for such ecosystems. So that's then a completely different and additional business model, which is then more of a partnership business model than a selling business model. In terms of the big players, the payers and the providers, how much interest is there in trying to develop their own digital health innovations versus with startups? Yeah, we're really seeing a lot of models here. Um, in some cases, payers are building you know, big digital shops and bringing in lots of talent from tech companies to do so. Um, in others, um, more you know, either acquiring smaller companies or doing partnerships, JVs. And even some of the large ones are taking many approaches, building some, but then also uh, looking at working with startups, making investments in them, et cetera. It really is a bit of a wild west as everyone to, to be at this point is trying to build uh, solutions and position themselves at the center of this platform or ecosystem. 
just going back to, to one thing we were talking about a little earlier, uh, Tobias, have we already started to see the potential this has for not just cost savings, but for actual improving health outcomes, especially in chronic disease space? When we looked at the evidence that is out there for digital health recently, we found that about um, 80% of the papers who looked at digital health quantitatively came to a positive conclusion. But that doesn't mean that 20% were negative. Some of them were also inconclusive or you know, wasn't enough data collected to make an actual judgment. When we double-clicked on the ones that were positive, four in five of these positive papers were actually showing an improved patient outcome. And that could be that patients are able to manage their blood glucose and their diabetes in a better way, that there was the desired weight loss achieved, that depression symptoms have improved due to cognitive behavioral therapy as well as also cardiological improvements, both in terms of heart attacks, as well as atrial fibrillation and diseases like that. Another thing that I just want to mention is that it opens up a completely different and, in my opinion, a very exciting additional field. And that means that with the data being collected and interpreted, you actually can then, via digital health, move into areas such as uh, di disease prevention. Right. So if we take me as an example, if I have wearable patient remote monitoring, there are already some universities and also some digital health companies working on algorithms to then pretty much say, if Tobias continues in the way that he currently does with, let's say, bad sleep, you know, um, cardiological features, overweight, etc., what is the likelihood that he will have diabetes type 2 or, or cardiovascular problems in five years, right? And of course, if we are moving in that space, being aware that my current lifestyle would maybe mean that I'm an 80% likelihood of uh, getting diabetes in five to 10 years, that is, of course, then an additional motivator for both my family, myself, my physician to actually move towards behavior change instead of just sort of seeing what's happening. You know, I've just recently read an article about sports medicine starting to get really into predictive injury using AI and such yeah. for their players. So that, that's, that's a fascinating space. Jenny, I think we're getting close to the end of the episode. Do you have anything you wanted to add or anything else you feel we haven't covered? It's interesting. We've actually put together a case library of you know, impact examples where digital health solutions have demonstrated and have studies of you know, real impact on health outcomes and quality improvements of about 400 now. Some of the big themes that we've seen are particularly strong evidence in things like remote monitoring for patients after they have heart attacks and many studies showing that that can prevent hospital readmissions and improve outcomes. It's just one very tangible example. Um, similarly, a lot in patients with diabetes for the use of digital therapeutics and these behavior apps um, tied with you know, coaching, glucose monitoring, et cetera, really helping patients to, you know, to manage the condition and improve outcomes. And then behavioral health being one where we see both just this incredible sustained interest in using virtual health and also some really positive outcomes in terms of preventing the hospital admissions as well. So those are a few of the areas I'd highlight where there's you know, some real momentum. Tobias, any concluding thoughts you'd like to leave us with? 
I think we looked at the the opportunity and the and the potential for for digital health quite a bit, and and I'm very excited about that uh, both as a as a citizen who's using it myself, but also for the broader health system. Um, I just want to close with some of the bigger picture things that uh, that ideally need to be in place in a country in a health system, so that all of these things are actually sort of contributing towards positive things for both the citizen as well as the country and the, and the health system. And we alluded to it uh, briefly earlier, right? There is, of course, one cybersecurity component. There is then the health data component, right? Where then um, ideally the patient actually um, is in the driver's seat or the citizen is in the driver's seat, sort of uh, who is seeing the data, how the data is being used and how everything is coming together, right? So in, in that sense, I, I just want to stress that's the foundation that ideally should be in place to actually make this a, an overall positive experience that then if we talk again in 10 years or so, where we can say that this has improved health and well-being for both the citizens as well as the, the country as a whole. Well, I know we've gone quite long. It's been a great discussion on such an important topic. I want to thank Jenny Rost and Tobias Silberzahn and McKinsey for joining us. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to McKinsey on Startups. And we hope you'll come back for future episodes. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.